connecting to the AOC Podcast Network. Enjoy your stay. What is AOC? What is community media? Maybe these are small questions, but they have big answers. So big, in fact, that we had to make a whole podcast about just that. The short answer is in our mission statement. Building an informed and engaged community through media, technology, and education. In this week's podcast edition of Community Quotes, we sit down with Alan Seymour. Alan talks about his upbringing in a traditional Cajun French home, challenges in school, military experience abroad, treating and healing the infirmed with the gift of his spirituality, and much more. Okay, Alan, thank you so much for joining us today on Community Quotes. If I can, have you say and spell your first and last name for me. Alan Simon, A-L-L-E-N and S-I-M-O-N. All right, Alan, let's go back to your youth. Uh, Tell me about your family, where you grew up, and what that was like. Well, we had a large family. Okay. Eleven kids. That's a lot. And... uh, Shortly after I was born, my parents uh, separated. Uh, my daddy had too many extracurricular activities. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so he wasn't around. And we moved. Uh, my grandfather had the tenant houses on the farm, and the tenants finished the crop, and they, they left, and we moved in. But it was. Uh, a couple of houses, you know, small houses had been put together, and one of them had inside walls, and the other one didn't. They were just outside wall and the roof, and you could walk in and you could see the the rafters and the underside of the roof, mm-hmm. and uh, there was no inside wall. So in the winter it was cold, and in the summer it was it was comfortable, but we were tough. We were used to it. We, mm-hmm. uh, I was the youngest out of 11, and when we moved there, I was about two or three years old. Mm-hmm. So I don't remember the, yeah. the first, you know, the initial move, but I've heard it from my older brothers and sisters so many times, and my mother, you know, she'd, she'd remind us uh, how it was, you know, the, uh, what they call that, the hard times. And it was at the end of the Depression. And people say, well, how did you weather the Depression? I said, what Depression? <laughs> we were already depressed. <laughs> <laughs> how can you get less than depressed? Yeah. <laughs> and everything was tight, you know. Uh, certain things were rationed. Tars, you had to have a special permit, the stamps, you know, uh, uh, gas and cooking oil and... and different things that were a necessity and we were lucky we were on a farm we raised everything we needed mm-hmm. and the only thing we ever bought on a regular basis was the stuff for the kitchen the salt and pepper and sugar and coffee and you know the little incidentals everything else you guys you grew yeah we grew had a big garden we raised rice we had a, a little sugar cane patch for the syrup 
The syrup was good for making cakes and pralines and, and all of this stuff. So we'd raise our own pigs and we had calves and we had the horses and chickens and ducks. So we ate well, good, home-grown food. You mm -hmm. see, the garden was big and we, we had all the vegetables we could possibly eat and we would can our food. That's mm -hmm. how the preserves, mm -hmm. you know, like fig preserves and we canned beets and, and uh, whatever was in the garden that was surplus. Yeah. We'd put that in the mason jar and it was a major chore to get all these jars, get them cleaned and, and uh, sterilized in, in, in the house, a little house in no air conditioning. It was hot and we had the beets, it was the dirtiest job because it, mm. everything you touch would turn red. Yeah. And to surprise us, during the summer, everything in the canned goods was put on the upper part of the cabinet against the ceiling and those things would sour oh. and explode. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> My mother was at the kitchen uh, right after dinner in the hottest part of the day and she was washing dishes or whatever and she hear poof and she grab her head oh my god <laughs> <laughs> and we'd look to see where the red beet juice was oh, no. coming down the cabinet coming <laughs> to the, toward the counter so we'd have to grab uh, something to climb on and pick the, the broken glass and the, the beets uh, and throw that away and uh, make a, a clean house on that on in that area so we were kept busy if it was not working the garden, it was working in the field, if it was not that, tending to the animals, because mm -hmm. we had all ages, and, and I was the youngest. Now, did you go to school? Well, when I tried to start school the first year, they wouldn't have me because my birthday is at the end of January, and I wasn't six. If you had to be six by the first of January to start school, because that was the way it was. And I didn't, I didn't make the grade, and uh, I was so small they could spot me. <laughs> they called me the midget. Oh. That was my nickname, the midget. And uh, we had the language problem, you know. So the next you year, you only spoke French. Just French. That's all we knew. In fact, the next year when I did start, uh, we had to learn how to ask to go to the bathroom in English. And maybe one out of the whole class, 20, 30 kids knew. And we'd say, comment tu dis ça? How do you say that? And they say, when you need to go, you raise your hand. And when the teacher looks at you, you say, biscu, and she let you go. So we tried that, and it worked. We found out sometime later, it was not a word. It was a whole sentence, may I be excused? But biscu did the trick. <laughs> So that, that was a, a uphill, uphill battle to start school because it was all in English. Right. And if we spoke French and the teacher heard us, we were punished. Mm -hmm. We had to write, I will not speak French on the school ground, a hundred times, the first time. How did you feel about that? Did you know that that was... <sighs> well, for me, I, I, I think often of looking back how this was, it was like in the morning, I'd get on a big yellow school bus and they'd drop me in a foreign country. Because mm -hmm. everything I knew was forbidden. You can't use this, you can't say that, you know, and all of this. And it was frustrating because my mother couldn't help me. She mm -hmm. just spoke French. Uh, my older brothers, if I'd asked them a question, 
they'd play a trick on me, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, they'd teach me a little poem to recite in front of class, which wasn't clean, and I'd get punished. And, oh. <laughs> <laughs> and they, they thought that was an Olympic gold medal for them. <laughs> And, and my sisters, if I had to ask them for something, I couldn't do it in front of Mama because when we start speaking English in the house, Mama would fuss oh. at my sisters. She called them some American, American. You know, yeah. you're too good to speak French in front of your mother. So oh. that was, you know, we had to learn English in secrecy at home, you know. Mm -hmm. and when we'd play outside, we learned certain words. So we were, uh, it's like you moving to a foreign country and starting school. Mm -hmm. That's now, here in Acadiana, there are several schools that are participating in this French immersion. What right. do you think about that? Well, when it started, oh, 30 years ago, I believe, it had a good intent. It was uh, to preserve French in South Louisiana. And the, the legislation was introduced and it passed and everybody got behind it. But there was some little, uh, what you call that, uh, hidden <laughs> little barbs in the system that uh, as soon as this thing was approved and, and put in, into law, uh, somebody came around and amended this, this thing. Oh, because they don't have any French people that can teach will have to get teachers from other countries. You know, Belgium, Holland, Sweden, Africa, whatever. And so that was a, a what you might call an amendment mm -hmm. to the, 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 whatever the constitution that, that, that they approved. So what we had, we had a problem because there were certain people in the system that considered our French to be inferior in other words, trash talk. Mm. Said he'll never use that. And in school, they gave us the impression that speaking French was, was low class, you see. And we were called ugly names, and especially in Southeast Texas, they, they had a, a bad name for us over there. And I was picked on and teased when I went into service because of my accent and all of this. So we had, we had an uphill battle to learn a new language and start school and uh, uh, know who we could trust that for the right, you know, because when you don't know, that's the worst thing about learning a language, you get laughed at yeah. because you don't pronounce it quite correctly. A typical example to go get bread, go get the bread is va chasser le pain. That's that easy. But if you say va chasser lapin, means go hunt the rabbit. <laughs> <laughs> so when you, when you make a boo-boo, people that speak the language, they laugh at you. So you have to be prepared. Mm -hmm. And we were not prepared because the principal at school was German, Rupert. Oh. And he didn't tolerate no French. Yeah, wow. and we were punished. Uh, we were made to write lines or put in kneeling in the corner or stuff like that and uh, I've seen a, one of our uh, classmates get slapped in the face by one of the teachers because he spoke French oh. and he wasn't supposed to but she was the exception mm -hmm. most of the teachers if we could get a local teacher that was you know in the first second third grade mm -hmm. uh, we were okay because she'd help us we'd say something and then she'd 
she'd explain, you know, this is the way you're supposed to say it. Mm -hmm. So that, but if we get an English speaking teacher, we were in a heap of trouble because she didn't understand us and we didn't understand her. Right. And it was a long day, you yeah. know. And uh, how, how many years did you go to school? Twelve. There was one school. school straight through. Okay. See, before me... What town was that? That was uh, in the country between Abbeville and Kaplan. It's a school called Mo. Mm -hmm. It's a small country school. Now it's growing. Mm -hmm. uh, but back then it was uh, one, one class, 15, 20 kids. You know, we were all in the same boat because they might have had one in the whole class that her mother was a teacher mm -hmm. and she spoke English and she could help us. And we'd go to her, Carol, how do you say this? How do you say that? And she'd help us. And we would help her with the French because uh -huh. her, her, her daddy was from North Louisiana. And so we had, we had our work cut out for us, but when you're young, you, you catch on. You, yeah. you pick up things faster. I couldn't do it now because I have a problem. I learn slow and I forget fast. <laughs> <laughs> you, 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 if you don't know the scenario, wait. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Alan, I, I know that you, um, you, you wear many different hats. You've been involved with so many different things uh, to preserve the French you know, culture and heritage for so many years. And you have some wonderful stories. And I, I know you through Acadian Village, where you and I work together and you were a tour guide and you've, you've met so many people and you left so many wonderful impressions on people. I would have people tell me after the tour was over that they thought you were fascinating and a walking encyclopedia and I, I do believe that you are. Who are some fascinating people that you've met that have left an impression on you? Well, when I was growing up, we didn't have much French on the radio. There was no television. So on the radio, we had maybe two people that would come on there on a regular basis, uh, Dudley J. LeBlanc, the How to Call King, <laughs> and every Sunday at 1230, he'd bring his commentary like Paul Harvey, and mm -hmm. he'd, he'd talk French. And man, I'd sit up and I said, wow, I mean, look at this guy. And then we had uh, uh, Roy Theriot. He was uh, in the politics. He was uh, preserving the French, and he spoke. I mean, this guy was like you open a fire hydrant when he started, I mean, the words would come pouring out. And they were both very, <laughs> very good in French. Mm -hmm. And then we'd put on little skits in the week at school. And then on the weekend, we used to go to the radio station in Abbeville, KROF, and do these little skits. Mm. And Mr. Roy Terrio was our announcer. And he would get up there, and he was a big guy. He'd open his, unbutton his coat put his hands on his hips and announced what we were going to do, the name of the little skit. And he said this was to preserve the French language. And I'd look at this guy, I said, man, <laughs> I said, what is he talking about? It's all over. We have it. But he could see down the road. He could, he could see that it was endangered because of the, mm -hmm. in 1913, Louisiana adopted a new constitution. And in there it said all children between the age of 6 and 15 had to go to school. That's chapter 1. Chapter 2 was in English. So uh, there was a lot of friction, a lot of tension. Some of the parents would hold their kids back and the law would get involved. Some of the kids were so humiliated at school that they'd 
they would cut school that hide under a bridge and spend the day there and then come home when the other kids went home. And they just never quite got into it. Mm -hmm. But those were my two main uh, people that, that were on the air that would, uh, uh, that would speak French. That was, mm -hmm. uh, I was lucky I had somebody, you know, I said, if he can do it, maybe I could do it. Yeah. Um, you mentioned that you were in the service, and I know that you and I have talked about your, your time in the military before, but tell me what that experience was like for you. And, and to sum it up in, in just a few words, it's like a degree. <laughs> it's like college. Yeah. You learn how to cover all bases because people in the military are not necessarily gentle people like we have here, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. It's getting that way here. Yeah. But way back then, uh, you had to be on your toes because if somebody said, I'll be there for you, well, if he showed up at all, he was there for himself, not for you, you know, character witness or something or the other, you know. And mm -hmm. so I learned that, uh, that the military is, is, can be a little hostile sometimes, and it's transit people here today, gone tomorrow, you yeah. see, and, and different, like uh, big cities, it's a, a mixture of different cultures and all of this. So it's not true blue like what we used to around here. Mm -hmm. So that was the thing. And was that a culture shock for you? Yes, it, it was. And uh, when I was stateside, people picked on me for my accent. And then when I went overseas, I had a friend who was with the State Department, American Embassy, whatever, and he spoke French. Mm -hmm. So I'd go visit him, and they had several diplomats from Dubai and Saudi Arabia and, and all of these neighboring countries that were in his living room and we were all talking French. And I said, wow, my French is not too bad after all. <laughs> People told us, forget that, that old French, you know, that, that's inferior. And uh, one lady asked me one time, she said, Mr. Simon, do you speak anything but French? I said, yes, I speak English. She said, where are you from? I said, United States. Oh no, she said, you speak American. <laughs> <laughs> I wish my English teacher would have been there. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> <laughs> but I learned, you know, that English exists all over the world. And every country has its own variation of the language. And it's not that one is better than the other. And the, the thing I could say about our old French is it's old, it's 17th century, mm -hmm. poetically correct French. Mm -hmm. And the French tell me often, they say, ah, monsieur, vous parlez un bon vieux français. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but monsieur, you speak a beautiful old French. They mm -hmm. said it reminds us when our grandparents were still living. They talked the way you do. Mm -hmm. And our French is purer than the French of France mm -hmm. because they have seven different languages, countries around them. So that's, that's their situation. They're looking at us. And uh, on the internet, I have friends on the internet, and they said, man, we've seen a, a what do they call it, a renaissance. Mm -hmm. It's a rebirth of the interest in the French. Because people say, hey, where can we go for the, the real, the antique stuff, you know, the, yeah. the, the original. And France is modernized, because everything they do is in French. 
the, the commerce and industry and, and all of this. Alan, um, have you been to Canada? Have you been to Nova Scotia? Yes. Yeah. I've been there twice. What was your impression of it? Well, we had a busload of 20, 25 people from here that went over there and it was all planned. We had, mm -hmm. in uh, 97, I think, we, we went to uh, the, I call that the Eastern Seaboard of Canada. Mm -hmm. And we, I was, I was amazed, I was surprised and, and we were treated like royalty you know i mean we'd, we'd get to a place and everything was arranged the hotel rooms the luggage and we had a guide you know while they were handling the baggage they'd take us on a city tour and give us some breakdown and uh, i enjoyed that so much and the economy over here had had gone downhill mm. in the 80s so uh two or three people on the on the trip while we were going they came up to me and said alan did you ever consider doing this, this guide, this stuff? I said, it's all I've been thinking about, you know. I said, I had to close my business because there was no more cabinet work. Mm -hmm. And I said, I come over here and I see uh, this beautiful country. I mean, these people, immaculate. No junkyards, no trash, no wrecked cars, everything painted and, and kept up. And uh, I said, wow, I said, this, these people have pride. In, and then we'd, we'd go, we'd cross the, the uh, 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 Prince Edward Island, and uh, it's called, it used to be called Ile Saint-Jean, and we took a ferry to cross with the bus and go on the island. And when we got on the ferry, we all got outside and we were talking, all the people from Delcom and Erath and Lafayette, and, and the French people from over there kept getting closer. <laughs> <laughs> what gives? Yeah. And so we said, we're from Louisiana. Ah, our Cajun cousins to the south, you know. And then we start introducing people around, said, this is Mr. Menard. And they look at him and say, but he looks like the Menards. <laughs> <laughs> and this is Mr. Richard. Yeah, we know he looks like the Richards. And, and, the people from here, the names would match, and the resemblance was there, you know? Wow. It blew my mind. I that, said, yeah. it's, it's like finding a, a part of your community that was lost for 150 years, you know, or more. Mm -hmm. And I said, this is something. And they'd put on little uh, parties for us, and watermelon, and dessert, and they'd sing songs for us, you know? And, and it, it was, to me, it was one of my favorite vacations, you know, was to... Uh, to go up there and be received, you know, and, and they, they had dances, they have these halls, mm -hmm. called Golden Age Halls, where they have their own activity, their own dance. So we'd go there and they had uh, uh, receptions, you know, uh, soft drinks. The only thing was that the food is a little, a little peakish. <laughs> 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 Not Tabasco. Yeah. So, but that, uh, you know, we didn't mind that, but we learned about our old ancestors that got deported from there and where they went. We had an audience with uh, Steve LeBlanc. Mm -hmm. uh, with, originally it was white. It was LeBlanc, but his mm -hmm. name was white mm -hmm. because his grand, great-grandparents couldn't find work by the name of LeBlanc because the British were in charge. Mm -hmm. So he changed his name to white, which means the same thing. Uh -huh. So we had to find out that uh, uh, how those names got changed. Uh, 
Several names along the way, just to get employment, would have mm -hmm. to change their name because the British were not very friendly to the French. Right. They just wanted them to, what they call, allez, allez, go. Mm -hmm. You just get out. Yeah. Um, whenever you were in the military, where were you stationed? Well, at first I was at Fort Jackson, South Carolina, basic training. Mm -hmm. Then I signed up for an uh, intelligence gathering school. It uh, went to uh, Massachusetts, Fort Devens, Massachusetts. And that's what was my first big culture shock. Mm -hmm. It felt funny over there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They, they don't use the R, you know, <laughs> in Park and Carr and Harvard and all of this. And uh, that's where I went to school. And it was the fall, the winter, and the spring, which I got to see the foliage and the snow and all of this. And then when I left there, my assignment was Turkey. So this sent me halfway around the world, you know. And uh, that was quite a, a trip to, uh, it was a Muslim world, and we didn't know how to act. Yeah. And we were afraid of insulting the flag or somebody, you know. Right. And uh, until I got in, got my feet wet, and got to go in the villages up in the mountains, and, mm -hmm. and uh, I hunted a lot. I was a, a mountain climber and a oh. mountain goat hunter and wild pigs and stuff like that. I was a, what they call that in, in Africa, buona. <laughs> uh, I enjoyed because it was outdoors and it was uh, it was uh, what you might call a good exercise. Sure. And uh, they had these chuck of partridge, and they said for every chuck of partridge you could kill on on a hunt one afternoon, you'd wear a quarter inch off of your soles of your shoes on the rocks and the, oh, wow. the cliffs and and all of this. Yeah. So I did uh, learn Turkish pretty good. You know, I picked it up. I didn't study it. I mm -hmm. just picked it up. And uh, I tried to be uh, an ambassador and not insult or not show off because mm -hmm. they were poor. All those people were lived in huts with the, the walls were made of mud, the floor was made of mud, and the roof was made of rose cane. Yeah. Did that They're, remind you of home? Well, yeah, they, 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 they had to go get their water, you know. At home, we had the old pump, the old hand pump, and the, and the, and the pail over there. The, the girls would go to the spring and get jugs of water, and they'd sleep on the floor. And they'd, uh, sometimes they'd let us sleep in one of their houses. You know, mm -hmm. they'd move the wife and the kids next door, which they didn't have no furniture. Yeah. And the stove was the only thing they had, an old uh, grease can with, with a stack on it. And we learned their food, and we were there during the what they call that the Byram, when they, they don't eat during the day for 40 days, you know. Oh, wow. And that was different. Mm -hmm. their, their food is different, and uh, they don't eat like we do. They, uh, it's, uh, they, 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 they're Weight Watchers. <laughs> 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 we, we, we stuff ourselves with Buddha and crackling yeah. <laughs> and all the good stuff. What did that experience teach you? Uh, a different culture. And uh, it, it taught me uh, how other people are different. And that, that doesn't mean they're worse than us or better than us, it's just different. Mm -hmm. And I learned how to respect their culture. And what it taught me was the best way to make friends with foreigners when you go to their country is you try to learn their language. Mm -hmm. And they'll go over backwards, lean over backwards to help you. 
because you want to be one of them. You're not above. Right. And they only see tourists and rich people in the, the, the movies, the old movies from America that go over there. So they had never seen a down-to-earth average Jew from America. And I kept that in mind all the time that, mm -hmm. you know, not to spoil things or have an incident or, you know, that uh, that would cause friction because yeah. they, they were one of the NATO countries. They were the only NATO country that's Muslim. Mm -hmm. Most of Europe is in the NATO in the United States in alliance, but they were, right. and we were there to, to bring technology to protect the the Russians from invading Turkey. Mm -hmm. That's what we did. We were uh, what they call that a listening post. That's what we did. But I was, you know, we were uh, Morse code interceptors. You know, if you know that, like mm -hmm. the little, yeah, the old dot, dot, dash. click click. Yeah, and and we had to sit there with headset and type all day and I was too slow, I, did, I never made it, I washed out of the program. Uh -huh. But I had a clearance, uh, top secret crypto, that's the highest you can get mm -hmm. to handle sensitive material and uh, I, was, I had background in drafting and some engineering, so it was a natural for me to go as a draftsman. Mm -hmm. So that was my real, my real job, yeah. make little lines. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I know that you uh, you did some cabinet making in your time, and and you enjoy woodworking and things like that. Tell me how that started with you. Well, when I was a kid, we lived in the country, five miles from town, on a dirt road, and we didn't have the money or the means to go to town. And when it come toys for Christmas, that was out of the picture. If we get an orange or apple or a praline in our shoes on New Year's morning, that was that was a gift. You see. And so I learned how to make my own toys, make little wagons, little uh, uh, playthings, or little airplanes and, and different things. And then when I got old enough, I joined the 4-H club and I could show different little articles I had made and I'd, I'd win ribbons. Mm -hmm. And that was encouraging. I yeah. said, uh, and, and the, the neighbors boys would see, say, can you make me one like that? And I said, yeah, okay. So I'd, I'd make things and we always had scraps of wood and we didn't have a drill as such, didn't have electricity. So we'd heat a nail on the burner on the stove or something and stick it in the wood. That was our drill. And we'd make a propeller for the little airplane and we'd, we'd uh, take a baseball bat that the handle was broken off, a wooden bat, and we'd put a wing underneath and we'd put the propeller in the front. It looked like a bomber, you know, <laughs> a B-24. And then we had a rudder on the back. And we'd, when we was all done, we might put two little propellers on each side, you know, for a three engine. And we'd find the center with the weight and we'd burn a hole in the bottom of this bat. And then we'd take, there was a fence and on the post, we'd put a nail Cut it, cut the head, and put the airplane on this nail where it would huh. it would swivel like a weather vane. <laughs> so in the morning, when it was cold, we'd look out the window and see which way the plane was facing and how fast <laughs> the propeller was turning. That was our weather, our uh, uh, like anemometer yeah. or whatever they call yeah. <laughs> it. So uh, I learned at a young age that I had a, a creative mind and I had to the patience to, to, to carve things and, and cut things. And, and uh, my first saw my brother gave me was about yay long. I still have it. And uh, 
So uh, I learned how to work with my hands at an early age. And there was always something on the farm that needed fixing, mm -hmm. you know, a gate or a door or something. So my mother would send me to, to, to do that. And we didn't have hinges and stuff. We had to take two or three old hinges and, and take them apart and make one good one, you know, to, to hold the gate up. So I learned uh, at an early age that I could fabricate, you know, whatever I needed, uh, or whatever we needed on the farm, shelves or, mm -hmm. so we always had old cypress, plenty of old cypress laying around. And uh, we'd make our own little boats, take a little boat and put two sticks on each side and take a rubber band, and put it across and make a, a little paddle wheel. <laughs> so you you'd spin it backwards and you put it in the water and the rubber band. <laughs> What on wine and paddle a little boat. <laughs> so uh, it was. Uh, I was fascinated by these mechanical things. Mm -hmm. So from an early age, I knew that I was destined to to work with my hands and, and coordinate. And in my junior year in high school, our music teacher, who was very intelligent, she said, "When Alan grows up, he's going to make things for people, and that's how he's going to earn his living." So when I grew up. I had my own cabinet shop. I started, and uh, that's been that's been what I wanted to do all my life. Yeah. Well, and then speaking of working with your hands, I know that you told me before that you have the gift of warm hands. Yeah. You are treta. Yeah, treta. So they call that healing hands. Yes. So I'm familiar, but why don't you enlighten our audience watching? What exactly is that, and how did you find that you had that gift? Well, what it is, it's, it's prayers and it's faith. If somebody believes in this, that's good, that wants to be treated, because that's what the old saying, they have to ask you first before you, you, you can treat them, you know, and that means they believe. So um, I was treated when I was a child, I scalded the back of my leg with a bucket of water that was meant for the pig we were cleaning the pig and ran out of hot water. Mama said, instead of setting up the whole big pot, she said, I'll put something on the stove. So when it was ready, I took this two gallon pot of hot water and went through the gate. But the gate didn't work like it was supposed to. It came back and hit the pot and it emptied on the back of my leg. So that was my big traumatic experience. And my stepfather uh, told me, he said, if you can tough it out till we get the pig cleaned out and you know dressed for because we use the, the, the chops, the, the backbone, for dinner. That's Mama had her sauce ready and it cooks fast. He said, I'll bring it to a lady not far from here. And back then from Kaplan to, to Milton is where we were going, it was a, quite a ways. He said, I'll bring it to Cousin Amede, Alice was her name, and she'll treat you. And man, I, was, I had khaki pants, that's what saved me because the, the water slowed down. It didn't hit me full force. And I was limping around, getting wood for the, the fire and, and uh, all kind of little chores. So finally, we were able to go to see this old lady. And uh, he knew her. She was related to, to, to him. He was my stepfather. And she prayed over my leg. And she gave me an ointment that she had made to put on there. And it healed, not a scar, not a blemish, nothing. It just, I mean, you couldn't tell, and uh, that was the first impression that I got on treating. When I was little, 
before I knew what was happening, I'd get treated, I'm sure. That was it. Mm -hmm. And then uh, all my life I wanted to do this, but I wasn't sure if I was worthy of such a gift, you see, because healing, help, helping people heal, because I don't do the healing. I'm the go-between, the instrument. And the helping people heal to me was, was quite, quite an accomplishment. So I said, people won't believe me, it won't take me serious. So when I was young, and about 20 years ago, I was at a friend's house from high school and her and I had been in school all our lives. They were neighbors. Her husband and I were neighbors. And, and she was babysitting her grandson. And he was crawling. What, what are they, eight, nine, ten months, twelve months? Mm -hmm. And he was crawling. It was mid-afternoon, and he was in a bad mood. So I said, what's wrong with him? She said, he's got allergies. So I said, did you have him treated? She said, no. She said, do you treat? All I knew how to do was say a prayer to stop bleeding, mm -hmm. animal or person, whatever. That's all I knew. And before I could tell her, she said it can't hurt. And it's three times. So she grabbed this little kid off the floor and was trying to hold him. He was hyper, little boy, wanted to go. So the first time I tried to pray over him, he was moving. And the second time, and we were sitting about like from here to you. And the third time she said, now wait a minute. She grabbed and put her in her arms face down. And then I was able to place my hands on his head. And I just prayed, you know, for this, this little boy, for some relief, whatever his problem was. And uh, I had just finished praying and she said, he's so calm. And she couldn't see his face, he was face down. I said, I hope so, he's sleeping. <laughs> she said, not so fast. She said, at noon when I eat, I feed him too. And I get on my recliner and put him on my chest so I know that he's not getting into trouble and I can relax, you know. And she said, he's hyper, he's twitching, you know, he wants to go. And she said, right now he's dead calm. Mm. And I said, hmm, did I do that? And then she told me another thing. She said, the first two times you tried to treat him when he was moving, she said, I felt the hair on my arms crawling, you know, like static electricity or something. And that raised another eyebrow. I said, did I do that? And so as soon as I left there, I went to my brother who lived not far away and been treating for nine years. And I asked him, I said, this treating, can I do that? Can I learn that? Is that in me? Oh, he said, you have it in you. I said, what do I have? He said, you have the healing hands, the warm hands. Mm -hmm. And I said, how do you know that? Well, we go to yoga and one pose you got to push in your partner's back to stretch the chest muscles. And he said, when you, when you did that, he said, I felt the warmth of the, your hands through my shirt. And uh, so I didn't hesitate. I went and talked to a few people and found out how do you go about it. And it's been the most enlightening thing I have ever done. One lady spelled it out for me. Uh, I wasn't too smart, but she said, you found your calling. Mm. And I've had many instances where I've prayed for people and uh, I'm a volunteer at Our Lady of Lords and I give communion on the third Sunday, which is coming up. And when I go in a room and they're hooked up on the, the, the respirator or whatever, and uh, I said, I'm here to give communion. And they say, well, you can see. Well, I said, can I pray for, the, for your, your family, the, the, the patient? And they said, sure. So that's, that's when I go out there and, and pray for these people.
and I've had a few little miracles. Oh. Just, just blew my mind. I had a list, okay? I got in a room and there was this elderly lady. She was uh, unconscious. She was just out of it. And uh, I offered to pray and it said, you can see. I said, can I? I said, can I pray for her? They said, sure. So I went out there and I always put one hand on the forehead and one hand on the arm, you know, like a negative and a positive. And I bowed my head and I started. When I got halfway through my prayer, I stopped and I glanced up and the tears were coming out of the corner of her eye, close to the nose. And I said to myself, hmm. I reached her. I was able to connect with this lady who was unconscious and uh, things like that along the way, you know, people called me back and they said, I don't know what you did, but keep doing it. <laughs> you know, it works. Yeah. So uh, it's, to me, it's, uh, I don't know, I guess you call it an honor to be able to, to reach out. And then after I start treating, uh, my brother told me, and then I realized I had the healing hand. So I had two things going for me mm. at, in this, this new found whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it's, it, it's not a job. It's, it's not a chore. It's, it's a pleasure to be able to reach out. Mm -hmm. um, Alan, you know, in Acadiana, we have a saying, laissez le bon temps rouler. Oh, yeah. <laughs> How do you like to let the good times roll? Well, I like to, to get together with friends, and I love to dance. <laughs> That's my thing. I love to dance, and it's a tradition that we grew up with. Mm -hmm. On Saturday night, we'd all pile in the car when we had a car. In the beginning, we had a horse and buggy, and you could get only a few in there. And uh, then we'd go to the dance, the mama and my stepfather and brothers and sisters, and, and we'd have fun. We'd meet and visit with other people. So we had uh, an outlet, you know, for our, uh, after working all week, studying and, and doing all of the chores, and that the Saturday night was, unless there was something major that mm -hmm. would keep us, that was, that was standard, you know, to go and listen to the music and uh, the old ladies I remember if they could get themselves one good waltz their <laughs> night was complete <laughs> and uh, you know nowadays I go to Randall's on Thursday <laughs> uh -huh. and get me several good waltzes <laughs> yes so that that's been uh, that's been the other part of my life that uh, that I treasure and uh, I even teach young people, young girls that come from other parts of the world, you know, how to dance. I don't, I'm not an instructor. I don't know the numbers, but I just go through the steps and say, follow me, you know. And yeah. I had one from uh, UL. She's with uh, a group of engineers and geologists this last Thursday. And then some from Belgium and some from France, you know students and uh, they they want to learn and mm -hmm. some of them are very good because in their country they have folklore dances mm -hmm. so they learn different uh, so that's and and to me my cup of tea if I can do something with other people you know that's that's where I belong yeah. I'm a people person and I look forward to meeting my new my new group coming from Holland or, or Belgium or whatever, you know, it's always new faces and 
and uh, they, they're very nice to me. They, they said, uh, one guy told me a few months ago, he said, Monsieur Simon, you are a legend. <laughs> <laughs> I said, that sounds like an antique. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think you're a legend. And I have one last question for you. How do you want to be remembered? Whew. I'm not ready to check out yet. <laughs> <laughs> Don't rush me. <laughs> Take your time, Alan. No, uh, <laughs> one thing that, that, that I, I want people to remember is that I love my, my culture, my heritage, music, and my language. And uh, I, I, I want people to know that I, I passed it on, you know, and I talked it uh, all, all my life because it was something that we should not be ashamed of. You should not be ashamed of where you come from, but you should not let it stop you from going where you want to go. In other words, to me, uh, certain people have hang-ups, mm -hmm. and I don't have too many of those. I just, just put me with a bunch of people and I'm gonna make them laugh, yeah. whether they want to or not. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna find that funny bone. <laughs> That's right, and that's, you do. That's, that's my cup of tea. I had, uh, uh, what's her name? Uh, the, the other girl working here. Mandy. Mandy. And I had her laughing in the hallway before you finished. Yeah. I said, I hope we're not bleeding over no. <laughs> on the other show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, telling her some little stories. But uh, that's, that's what I, do, I love to do because I'm passing on a language and a history and a culture in the little stories. So what is your hope? for future generations? Well, I'm hoping that we can save a French and pass it on. And if uh, it's not gonna be the pure old Cajun French, I know that. Mm -hmm. And because nowadays the way to save a language is to read it and write it. When I was growing up is to listen and speak. See, uh, I do night classes sometimes, oral French, mm -hmm. I teach oral French. And I have to keep reminding me, these guys want to see it written. Yeah. And, and, and I have a, a problem with writing it because I never learned how mm -hmm. to read and write French. Mm -hmm. It's um, a, a functional illiterate <laughs> 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 when it comes to reading and writing French. If somebody said, write it how it sounds, that's how I write it like it sounds. But mm -hmm. all the letters are, are different pronunciations. So uh, I want people to remember that uh, I, I really, uh, what they call that, enjoyed my life. You know, uh, I, I, I never tried to make excuses and, and like a cry baby or stuff like that. I said, okay, that's it. Run with it, mm -hmm. go for it, you know, because uh, you can't change certain things. That's right. So you, you just accept it. All right, Alan, thank you so much for being here. It's a true pleasure. It was, uh, it was fun. <laughs> <laughs>
Music in today's episode, The Long Goodbye by John Pazdan. AOC Community Media is located at the Rosa Parks Transportation Center, 101 Jefferson Street, Suite 100, Lafayette, Louisiana, 70501. For more information, go to our website at aocinc.org, call 337-232-4434, or email info at aocinc.org. Until next time, stay informed and engaged.